Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up For The Truth, a packed hour of challenging discussion addressing important issues and topics affecting Christians across the nation. Join the conversation via email at comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, David Fiorazzo. Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. Welcome to another edition of Stand Up For The Truth. As always, we appreciate you guys sharing us on social media. That's how people get to see or hear our podcasts because, um, you know, Facebook kind of censors some of our Christian content and a lot of people deal with that. But you, because of you sharing, uh, get these podcasts out for other people to hear. So thank you so much for your prayers and for your support of this ministry. Before we open up today uh, with an exciting new guest and a book I want to talk about that's really going to help you guys with some perspective today, let's open up in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for giving us another opportunity to really talk about things that matter. Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd lead this conversation. And a lot of people have needs, and mainly for hope and encouragement. But Lord, we know most of the people that are listening right now do believe in you and trust you. We pray in Jesus' name that they would not be giving in to fear, but that they would just continue to believe with faith that you are sovereign over all things and that we are here for such a time as this. Lord God, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom and help us to do the work that you created us to do one day at a time. We praise you, Lord. We thank you that we have a hope that can never be taken from us. And we lift up this hour and this day to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today um, I recently came across um, an author that um, I was someone recommended him to me. And I looked at his book and then read his story. And I think this is something that you guys are going to be blessed by. So get ready. Um, the book is called For Thou Art With Me, Biblical Help for the Terminally Ill and Those Who Love Them. I'd like to introduce Dr. Bruce Baker. He's president of becomingmature.org and an author of several books, former pastor of a couple different churches, I believe, in different states. So, Dr. Bruce Baker, welcome to Stand Up for the Truth. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time for us, and uh, your story needs to be heard, and it needs to give people the perspective that I think we can sometimes lose when we get too focused on ourselves, and we are just really too spoiled here in America, I think. But, um, Bruce, first of all, um, before we get to the book, For Thou Art With Me, and we'll put a link to the Amazon book page in the podcast notes, I want you to share your story, and uh, for your ministry years and the things you've been a part of. We'll talk about your other book as as well, t- at least touch on it. But you were diagnosed uh, three years ago with ALS, and uh, you are now home on hospice. Is that correct? And you can just take it from there. Yes, that's correct. I uh, was, uh, I've for a long time have been involved in uh, doing short-term missions work overseas and teach pastors and give them a uh, a very short seminary education on a particular topic, because most pastors overseas do not have that opportunity. I taught seminary for quite a while, and so it was easy for me to do as far as that goes. So I'd go to Russia, or you know, uh, I've been I've been everywhere, 
Uh, for about the last 10 years before I stopped, I was in Central Africa. And uh, one time when I was in Central Africa, I noticed that I started falling uh, when I was going upstairs, interestingly enough. And I thought, well, I'm tired or, uh, you know, jet lag or you know, building standards are not the same everywhere and so forth. I just kind of brushed it off. Then my uh, my brother-in-law, who has Parkinson's, noticed that Christmas that my hands were shaking. Hmm. And he asked me if I'd gone check it out. And I said, no, but I probably will. And then I kind of brushed that off. And then the following January, I started noticing that getting dressed on Sunday morning was the hardest thing I had to do. Hmm. So that's when I went to the went to the doctor and he said, well, you could have ALS or you could have any number of other diseases. Let's test you out. So they did a, a series of tests and um, they decided, no, you don't have ALS. You've got something else. The problem was that I didn't fit anything else. Nothing else worked. So finally, after several misdiagnoses uh, in November of 2017, or excuse me, August of 2017, my doctor said, we believe that you have two diseases, that you've got some other disease that was helped by these various drugs and treatments, but that you also have ALS. That's not unheard of. It's uncommon, but not unheard of. And I said, well, if that's true, what's my prognosis? And he told me again in August 2017, I'm pretty sure you'll live a year, or pretty sure you'll live six months. Wow. You could live a year, 18 months at the outside. And Bonnie, of course, Bonnie, my sweet wife, and I were there, and we were both stunned by this. But when we got back into the car, we stopped and we prayed, and we said, all right, Lord, whatever you decide is best, and we will live with that. And it's when I decided, uh, you know, to live my life as best I could, and I kept hearing the same thing from doctors over and over again. Uh, and that's, you're different. You're not like the other patients. The other patients are terrified or they're grief-ridden or whatever, and you're happy and joyful and tell jokes. I had people ask my uh, my wife when I wasn't in the room what made me different. One asked my sister. Every now and then they'd ask me. So that's why I decided to write this book, because I wanted to explain why my approach to death was different than most other people's. Uh, I look at terminal illness as a gift. Everybody's going to die unless mm -hmm. Jesus comes first. Everybody is going to die, but we don't think about that. Yes. We pretend as if our life was our own and it will go on forever. But when you're given a terminal diagnosis, that's when you have to face what's been true all along, but now becomes a reality to you, and that's that you're going to die. And that gives you time to prioritize things, to get your affairs in order to say those things that should have been said a long time ago, to seek forgiveness or to grant forgiveness or to restore relationships or get right with God, all these things we should have been doing anyway but never seem to quite get around to. That helps us focus and prioritize. And, of course, that's hopefully what's going on with a lot of people with COVID-19 or are worried about COVID-19, that they're making those phone calls, they're, they're, they're restoring relationships. Uh, saying those things that should have been said and, and, of course, getting right with God. I'm hoping that that's going on now. 
Well, Bruce, I do want to ask you, um, from my perception, it, it seems like more often than not, even Christians are becoming a little, I don't want to say unhinged or desperate, but fearful. And what you just described to us is we know that the Bible teaches that believers in Christ, we, we are going to be with him. That is the hope that we have. Absent from the body is present with the Lord, and yet we really don't live like it. I remember reading a book years ago, I think it was called Tuesdays with Maury, and there was a quote in there that says that we, we are, everyone should tell us at the beginning of our lives that we're going to die. Then we might take things more seriously and, and do the things we are really supposed to do. And really it means manage our time, redeem the time. And you say you were given the gift of time. And let me just quote the very beginning of your book, chapter 1. Uh, the book, again, folks, is called For Thou Art With Me, Biblical Help for the Terminally Ill and Those Who Love Them. And this just came out last year, didn't it, Bruce? Yes, sir. Chapter 1, Why Am I Writing This Book? I am dying. That statement by itself isn't all that remarkable since it's true of all of us. Everyone reading these words is dying. What makes this, that statement unique is that my process of dying has been accelerated. And by that, you mean your diagnosis with ALS. Of course, you've, you've outlived their original prognostication. But would you speak to the listeners right now, most of them are Christians, and encourage them regarding what's going on in our country and around the world with, in light of the coronavirus? Sure. Well, first of all, when it comes to death, death is, uh, is something that we all face and something that everyone fears. And the reason everyone fears it is because everyone knows that after we die, there is something else. That death is not the end. In fact, every religion is based upon that. Every religion has four things in common. Every religion believes that there's a higher power or powers that's greater than us, that we're born into a relationship with, and that makes certain demands on our lives. That's true of every religion. Every religion says that um, the way we live our lives now, uh, the things that we do, we'll either get rewards for or punishment for. The, every religion believes that between ourselves and this higher power or powers, Something is wrong. I really find that fascinating. That mm. every religion, it doesn't matter the type of religion, whether it's polytheistic, monotheistic, animistic, spiritistic, it just doesn't matter. All religions believe that between ourselves and this higher power or power, something is wrong. And then fourth, what you do in this life affects what happens to you after you die. That every religion believes those four things. Interesting. So because of that, because of that, People know that this life is not over, but they don't have a clear perception of what happens after that. And that's because for believers in particular, the church has changed in my lifetime. It used to be prior to, let's say, 1950, um, people talked about death a great deal. And then uh, in 1950, things began to change a little bit. Uh, and um, they began to talk about how the purpose of Christianity is for you to live a better life right now. And so a lot of times when you go into churches, 
people don't talk about sin. They don't mm-hmm. talk about the cross. They mm-hmm. don't talk about um, they don't talk about the reality of death. They learn how to be better leaders, or how to be better husbands, or how to manage their finances better. These are all good things, but they're not the most important things. People need to know how to die because it's going to happen to all of us, and that's what Christianity speaks to. In Revelation one, Jesus says, uh, "I am He who." Uh, became dead, and I'm now alive, and I live forevermore, and I hold the keys to hell and death. In other words, there is nothing that's going to kill me, David, mm. uh, unless Jesus puts that key in the door. There's no matter, no matter what the size of the army, it can't be done until Jesus puts the key in the door. Mm. Contrary-wise, there's nothing that can save me. No team of doctors, no matter how skilled, can save me if Jesus does put that key in the door. And when we recognize that death is controlled by him, that changes things. Now, most people would say, well, yeah, I believe that. But they haven't given any time to think about it. And that's what we should be doing right now, because nobody knows who has the coronavirus and who doesn't. We should recognize that Christ is the one that holds the keys to death and the grave. Amen. And to live as Christ, as Paul said, to die is gain. At the end of chapter one in your book, For Thou Art With Me, you said, um, that's why I'm writing this book. I want you to have what I have. Really, there's nothing unusual about me. I'm just an average guy with a terminal disease. What makes me different is not who I am, but who I know and what he has promised. Interesting that you wrote that at the end of the first chapter, I've just recently read First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, and I would love for you to, to touch on that and give us your thoughts on the hope of the resurrection. Of course, it starts off with the gospel and Jesus being raised from the dead and then appearing to people, and then the resurrected body and what that's going to be like. That must be uh, a, an incredibly encouraging chapter to you and all Christians, but to you in particular. Yeah, it is, particularly the last part of 1 Corinthians 15, uh, right around uh, verse, well, let's see, right around verse 35. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body they will come? How foolish, what you sow does not come to life until it dies. And when you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps a wheat or something else. In other words, if I go to the local farm store here and I buy some seeds, if I buy it in a packet, they're not going to show me what I'm buying. They're going to show me the promise of what I'm buying. They're going to show pictures of flowers on the front, or they're going to show me pictures of an ear of corn or something like that. When I open the packet, it looks entirely different. But until, uh, but if I protect those seeds and don't let anything happen to them, nothing will grow. Hmm. But if I take them, I put them in the ground. I let that outer shell start to decay. Somehow it, it, it brings that spark of life into being that's in every seed, and they start to grow into something different. You know, um, an oak tree is not the um, reassembling of the acorns of an atom. It is genetically connected to the acorn. It is related to the acorn but it's something different and greater. So will our resurrected bodies be. It won't be just like this body. It will be greater. It will be genetically related. It's, we don't get a 
um, brand new body starting from nothing. We get a resurrected body, mm. but this body's just a seed, and and we will come to life um, uh, in a resurrected body. You know, you said a minute ago. I, I do want to comment on this in Philippians uh, chapter two, where Paul says, "For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain." That's the only way dying is gain. Mm. Is if to live is Christ, because if to live is anything else, then when we die, we suffer loss. If to live is money, we suffer loss because we leave it here. If to live is my family, it's loss. If to live is power or prestige or my reputation or whatever it is to live for, if that's what we live for, dying is loss. And I think that's also why some people are afraid to die. But if to live is Christ, then to die is gain, because that's the one thing that transcends the grave. That's the one thing that we have in this life that continues into the next. So that's why it's very important to get our priorities right now. Amen. So when we die, which we will do, life, our death rather, will be gain, not just a loss. And I don't remember, there's so many quotes out there about this concept that if if you're a Christian and you have stored up treasures on earth, then you don't look forward to dying because then you've got to leave all your treasures behind. Now, I just probably paraphrased about a dozen uh, Christian authors or quotes, but uh, we are speaking with Dr. Bruce Baker. His book is called For Thou Art With Me. Um, at the end of chapter one, uh, you encourage people to linger and consider, and you ask this question, would you pause here for a bit and think about what we've discussed? And then another question, which word best describes my overall emotional state, fear or peace? And we've got to take a break in about two minutes, uh, Bruce, but I'd love for you to give people an opportunity to choose peace and how to go about doing that in the midst of what they're dealing with now. Well, the only way to have peace at death is to know what happens after you die. That's the only way. Other than that, you're going to have fear. Um, and the only way to have peace is to be right with Jesus Christ. That's, that's the only way. So if somebody does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, in other words, they have not accepted the forgiveness that Christ offers because of the cross and because of the resurrection, they need to do that first, and my book will explain how to do that. I'm, two minutes is not enough time for me, I'm afraid. <laughs> but I will, uh, I will say that you will learn it there. But then, even for the believer, we need to concentrate on what the Bible has to say about death and about the afterlife, the process of death, all these things that go into it. This is just a forgotten doctrine for a lot of people. And so that's why I felt it needed to be explained in this book. What does the Bible have to say about death and dying and what happens and the resurrection of the body and so forth? We know what it does say about anxiety, and that's what a lot of people are experiencing now. In Philippians chapter 4, it, it tells us, Don't be anxious for anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And then it says, And then the peace of God will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. But before we can receive that peace, we've got to trust him and be anxious for nothing. Right. And um, we're right. going to talk more about that with Dr. Bruce Baker. 
When we come back, we um, have the book, For Thou Art With Me, Biblical Help for the Terminally Ill and Those Who Love Them. We'll come right back on Stand Up for the Truth. Your monthly financial support of StandUpForTheTruth.com is needed and appreciated. Now, back to today's Stand Up For The Truth with David Fiorazzo. We're back with Dr. Bruce Baker, president of BecomingMature.org. His book is For Thou Art With Me. And uh, Bruce has ALS, and he's been a missionary, he's been a pastor. By the time uh, I was given the diagnosis of ALS, um, my physical condition, I just wasn't strong enough to go. Mm. Um, And I needed special adaptive equipment in order to do certain things. It just was not... I'm not capable of doing um, because God is a good God. He's blessed me. And my son who is also uh, an ordained minister. One of my sons, my middle son, he's youth pastor in Makokata, Iowa. He uh, took up the challenge and he's been going over every year. Wow. And he's been teaching the pastors and, uh, and they needed to be taught. I remember one pastor, I asked him, what was the difference of my coming over before I came over? He said, well, before you came over, my sermons were about how God wanted you rich. Oh, my goodness. And since you started to come over, um, I've learned that uh, what I should be preaching is that God wants you saved, that you need to come to the cross and have your sins forgiven. Wow. And I said, that's right. And that's what my son teaches over there now. So he he took that up. I was given a, um, a diagnosis of lots of fancy names, multifocal motor neuropathy, um, chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, that kind of stuff. But um, uh, I was going over with a cane for several years. Okay. Uh, and I'd have people, when I had to walk through sand, they'd be on either side of me helping me. Hmm. Uh, but I, I finally came to the point where I had to say, I can't do the... Uh, when, it, when it became very difficult for me one time in Kenya... Uh, in order to try and change planes to get where I was trying to go. And I realized I just couldn't do it anymore. That's mm. when I quit. Mm. I wasn't physically able anymore. So you are in Texas currently. Before that, you were in Michigan, or was it? did I miss a stop? Nope, I was in Michigan. Before that, I was in Kansas City. And before that, I was in the Navy. Wow. Norfolk, Virginia. Wow, now you went to, you studied at Calvary Bible College, and um, let's see, also uh, Calvary Theological Seminary, Grace School of Theology, and um, so that's yeah, why I there's a— Grace School of Theology. What's that? I received my—I said I taught at Grace School of Theology. Okay. My doctorate was from Baptist Bible Seminary in Clark Summit, Pennsylvania. Okay. Wow. Um, it's, it's great to talk to people who know their Bible. And by the way, uh, we just had another pastor on, uh, Elijah Abraham. He travels around the world teaching pastors. And when he goes to some of those countries, such as Africa, the prosperity gospel is so popular there. And it's astounding to me, Bruce, that people that are poor and impoverished, it's not astounding that they are deceived and they fall for that, but they look at the pastor who maybe is dressing really nice and maybe is saying that God wants you to have good things. They want to believe that. I mean, that's something that the average person would say, well, yeah, that sounds good to me. Sign me up. But my goodness, that's a perversion of the gospel, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I 
I have nothing kind to say whatsoever about those that tell you that God wants you rich or that God wants you healthy, because that just is unprovable in the Scripture. In fact, the only physical promise that the Church has given in the New Testament for this world, not for the next, but for this world, the only physical promise that we have received is that in this world you will have tribulation. Mm. Wow. So it's, it's, it's not at all like it's being portrayed, and that's why uh, the biggest need in missions right now is not necessarily evangelists, but people to go and train pastors. I'm glad to hear that this pastor is doing that, because that's exactly what the need is. Yes. To go and train the pastors. They have no—a lot of times they don't have anything written in their native language, and um, so that's great. I'm glad to hear he was doing that. And he, one of I'm going to paraphrase one of his quotes. He says, what we have here— is American Christianity, but oftentimes it is not biblical Christianity. And so he's got to go around the world or to these other countries. He was going to go to India, I think, but I think that got postponed because of the travel restrictions. But he's teaching pastors to unlearn some of the things they did previously. Now, uh, Bruce, you have another book out. Uh, It's not just the one for Thou Art With Me. You also wrote one called Spiritual Maturity, The Road to Wonderland. And, of course, your website is Becoming Mature. Dot org. Before we get back into the latest book and talk more about your story, could you share just a little bit about uh, spiritual maturity? Absolutely. I was doing some research, and I went into a bookstore, and um, I went in and I said, uh, could you help me find a book on how to become mature in Christ? And this person didn't know what I meant, <laughs> and so sent me into the back um, where all these books were just jumbled together uh, alphabetically by author, and I looked around and I couldn't find anything, so I left. Went to the next bookstore, talked to a very nice young woman who looked all of 12 to me, but that's probably because I'm older. (laughs) And um, I said, uh, could I talk to somebody that really knows the stacks, really knows the books well? I can help you. No, I I really want somebody that knows them well. I can help you. Okay. (laughs) I'd like something to help me grow in Christ, to become mature in Christ. So she started clicking into her keyboard and click, 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 click. And then would squint at it. No. (laughs) Click, click, okay, click, click. No. Click, click, okay, click. Oh, here's one. It's Oh. And I said, is there a problem? And she said, yes. I found one, but it's in our commentary section. And I said, why is that a problem? And she gave me a patronizing grin, and she said, well, that means you'll actually be getting into the Bible. What? And I stood there with my mouth open. I was absolutely dumbfounded. I can't make this up. I really can't. (laughs) I can't make it up. So I went to a third bookstore. Oh, but by the way, the book she was referring to is Be Mature by Warren Wiersbe, which is a commentary on James. It's excellent commentary. So I went to a third um, bookstore, and I asked the manager for a book to help me grow in Christ, and he's acting like he's never heard of this subject before. And I'm giving him all the synonyms I can think of, you know, growing in Christ, becoming mature, being spiritual. And then his eyes lit up, and he went, oh, you're talking about spiritual formation. Oh, no. Yeah, what it, whatever. I don't know what that is. Sure, whatever. Oh. So he led me to the very front of the store, 
And I started looking at books about uh, praying the rosary oh. and spiritual disciplines. And I thought, honestly, that I had wandered into a Roman Catholic bookstore because it was all about Roman Catholic theology. Hmm. And the movement was the spiritual formation movement, which is trying to bring us back to first century Christianity and all its rights and disciplines and this type of thing. And that's when I said, there's nothing out there to teach people how to become mature in Christ. Wow. So I wrote one. Well, that's, that's the main reason I had for writing it. Well, just because I couldn't find anything that I wanted. Exactly. So I wrote my own. It was needed. And so I'm going to definitely plug that book again, just by so many people can probably relate, at least our audience, our listeners tend to be more mature and believe in the inerrancy of scripture. And his book is spiritual maturity, the road to Wonderland. So you probably went in, you realized that a lot of these books were how to be successful, how to grow a bigger church, how to have your best life now and make every day a Friday. And then you're thinking, well, how does that, what does that have to do with discipleship? Right, Bruce? Right, right. The way to become spiritually mature is to log hours being filled with the Spirit. Hmm. Being filled with the Spirit is when God, the Holy Spirit, is working in and through us everything that he desires. That's what it is. And there's a way to become spiritually mature, to confess our sins, etc. And I, I go into detail about maturity and, and so forth. And um, basically, it's, it's, it's based off a book called He That Is Spiritual by Lewis Berry Schaefer. Hmm. That book was written in 1918, and it's in very small print, and it reads like it was written in 1918. But the truths remain valid, so I basically took the truths that I found in that book um, and uh, uh, put them into something that hopefully is more accessible to a modern audience. Excellent. Well, we're glad to you know have you on here so you can mention both of these books. And um, let's jump back now to the book that uh, we were talking about earlier, For Thou Art With Me, Biblical Help for the Terminally Ill and Those Who Love Them. I just want to read, uh, quote you from chapter two of your book called The Gift of Time. And uh, referring to your, your ALS diagnosis, uh, you write, some people call this a curse. I call it a gift. It's a gift for two very important reasons. First, it leaves you no choice but to face the inevitable. And second, you've been given time to get ready. Now, obviously, all people, regardless of their health, have time to get ready. Everyone knows death is coming, and everyone should prepare for it. But really, who actually does that? End quote. And I, I love that because you're right, and I bet it bothers you to be right so often. But who actually, if you're healthy and you do not have a, a doctor's uh, diagnosis of a terminal disease uh, or, or something that you have six months, it's some form of cancer, whatever else it might be, most of us are not really preparing for death. Who actually does that? But I'll tell you what, I know people who have lost loved ones, maybe before their time. Uh, my sister uh, died when she was 24. Um, we all know people who die young. That can kind of uh, steer us for just a little while to, okay, thinking ahead to am I preparing, but you don't stick with it very long because it's, we are creatures of habit. And so, Bruce, some of your chapter titles, The Gift of Time, Why Are People Afraid to Die, which we talked a little bit about in the first segment. Also, What is Death for a Believer? 
as opposed to an unbeliever. And I'd like to like for you to talk about Spurgeon's challenge. Well, Spurgeon uh, was uh, delivering a message to invalid ladies. Here's what he wrote. He was addressing a, a, a number of uh, invalid ladies in a home, hmm. and uh, he preached a sermon called Beloved Yet Afflicted. So here's what he, he said to them. If Jesus loves you and you're sick, let all the world see how you glorify God in your sickness. Let friends and nurses he, see how the beloved of the Lord are cheered and comforted by him. Let your holy resignation astonish them and set them admiring your beloved, who is so gracious to you that he makes you happy in pain and joyful at the, great, at the gates of the grave. If your religion is worth anything, it ought to support you now, and it will compel unbelievers to see that he whom the Lord loveth is in better case when he is sick than the ungodly when full of health and vigor. That's absolutely true, and that's something that should be going on, may I say, right now, because people are sitting, I'm, I'm, I'm perusing what people are writing about the um, COVID-19 and mm-hmm. how terrified people are. I just saw something this morning and talking about you're not sad, you're grieving, and so forth in the secular media. And we should be different. Yes. And people should notice that we're different, that we're not terrified, that we're not huddling in holes. Uh, trying to keep from dying, that there is a difference to us because we are in a better state because we have a comforter with us, Jesus Christ, uh, to give us that peace that passes all understanding. Um, so so we, that we really should be uh, so different that people look at us and say, why is he different? That's why I wrote this book, because people were asking that about me. And then when people do ask that, we should answer, give a, be ready to give a reply uh, about the hope that lies within us. Mm. So that's, that's what this is intended to do, this book. And I, I, I can't, can't help but give a little bit more away, because I, I just love uh, some of these quotes and, and how you write, uh, Bruce. By the way, we're speaking with Dr. Bruce Baker. He's the president of Becoming Mature, and the book is called For Thou Art With Me. It is available on Amazon. We will put the link to it in the podcast notes at StandUpForTheTruth.com. You say this is a gift not everyone receives. Some people die suddenly with no warning, no advance notice, no time to get ready. The routine trip home is ended when a drunk driver crosses the yellow line. A seemingly healthy man clutches at his chest, grimaces, and falls to the floor. In a random act of violence, a trigger is pulled, and suddenly... A family is bereft of a wife and mother. What these instances have in common, and scores of others just like them, is that there was no time. There was no time to get finances in order. There was no time to say goodbye. There was no time to say things that, that should have been said a long time ago. There was no time to forgive. Uh, most importantly, there was no time to get right with God. And then you say, this isn't so with you. And um, people that are hearing this podcast right now and people that maybe picked up your book or books like it that just are great reminders for us to teach us to number our days but also to redeem the time, um, this is for you guys. That's why I wanted to have you on today, Bruce, because I wanted you to share about your book and about your story. And most people might say, boy, how, or ask you, how can you keep 
such a positive attitude or how can you have joy? And when those questions, we understand the heart of those questions, but we also understand that if they knew the scriptures and had a relationship with Jesus Christ and had that peace with God, then those wouldn't be the people asking those questions, would they? That's exactly right. Of course, may I say quickly that it's more than just knowing about what happens when we die. It also has the idea of that there is meaning in life now. Um, as people have talked about my book, uh, one of the things I've found that they most often talk about is the center section where I talk about why do Christians suffer, mm. particularly the three questions that people ask most. Why me? Why am I going through this? Or mm-hmm. why this? Why this one thing that I've ter- been terrified of all my life? Or why now, just when everything was going so well, or mm. contrary-wise, when everything was falling apart anyway? Why? And there are answers to that, biblical answers, as to why things happen to God's people. God hasn't left us just wandering and grasping in the dark. Uh, He gives us answers that we should look at and evaluate. So that's in there as well. And then also, you know, I've heard people say, well, you know, I'm not afraid of what happens when I die, but I am afraid of the process of dying. Most people aren't aware of this, but God gives us a picture of what it's like to die. Uh, When he talks about the rich man and Lazarus, some people think that's a parable. I don't. Uh, There's never a personal name given in a parable. In this name, in this story, we know there's a guy named Lazarus. Interesting. And and, uh, so this is something that Jesus is giving that is a supernatural explanation of something that he alone could know about. And he talks about what it's like to die, both for the rich man and for Lazarus, and it's different. So we're told about what it's like to die. My eyes were kind of opened by the teaching of the principle that there is a consciousness where the rich man could see or perceive on the other side of the great chasm that was fixed, and Lazarus was on the other side, and there was communication between Father Abraham, and Lazarus. So I find that to be fascinating. I would love to, to have you expound on that just a little bit more, Bruce. Sure. It's found in Luke 16. Luke 16. 19 to 31. In it, we find that the rich man, you know, what shall I do? I'll tear down my barns and build bigger barns and say to my soul, soul, take thy knees. Now it's laid up goods for many years. And, that, and God says to him, tonight your soul is going to be required of you. And he died. Hmm. Okay? He died. And that's all it says about him. He, was, he died and was buried. That's all it says about him. The difference is that the rich man, or excuse me, Lazarus, when he died, it doesn't say anything about him being buried. It's very possible that he was so poor that they didn't even have a burial for him. Hmm. And yet it does tell us that the angels came and took him to, Laz- or to Abraham's bosom. So there was an angelic escort to take him into eternity um, because he belonged to God, where the rich man, uh, no, not so much. He just died and was buried, and he opened his eyes, and he was in torment. That's all it says. Hmm. And I love, Whereas, uh, oh, go ahead. It, it appears that death in both cases is, is instantaneous, I should say. Um, but nevertheless, uh, there, and when I 
say that about instantaneous. What I mean is there's a prolonged journey. There's no tunnel with white lights. There's no transition stage. There's no hovering over the body, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what does happen is the rich man opens his eyes in torment. Lazarus is escorted or carried by the angels. So there's a difference even in the way we die. The process of death is different for a believer than for an unbeliever. Hmm. I I just got a new picture of that when you described how the poor man died and was carried away by angels to Abraham's bosom. So is that paradise? Is that heaven? Is that one of the heavens? What do you think? Well, I think that uh, that is a that there was a holding area, so to speak, prior to the death of Christ. Okay. And then, then when he died, it says he went and, and preached to the spirits that were in captivity. In Ephesians, I believe it is, that he took captivity captive. Yes. I think that when, when he was um, in the grave, he went and took all those that were in paradise, but still not in the the realm of God, so to speak, that we're not in God's presence. He took them all at that point and took them up into into glory. Hmm. I know that that's not the case that we are at Abraham's bosom now, because Paul tells us very distinctly that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Yes, yes. So, we will, but I still wonder about whether there'll be an angelic escort or not. Hmm. I can't prove it, but I suspect it's like I suspect it's likely. I uh, love the way the chapter ends too. It's pretty sobering. Um, but Abraham said they have Moses because the guy wanted his his family to be warned. Right? They have Moses right. and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, "No, Father Abraham. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent." But he said to him, "If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets," They will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. We certainly see that. We see that in John 11, Mm -hmm. where Lazarus is raised from the dead. And because Lazarus is raised from the dead, more and more people are coming over to to Jesus. So at the end of John 11, we read where the Pharisees are trying to kill not just Jesus, but trying to kill Lazarus too. Yeah, the reminder of the miracle, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we killed him one. He died once. Let's kill him again. <laughs> and even now, Jesus has risen from the dead, but they don't believe him. Hmm. So, if people have all that they need to believe in the testimony of scriptures, that we, we don't need any more than that. Don't need any miracles. That's all that we need right now. Hmm. If people will just believe. Wow. Dr. Bruce Baker, the time went by way too fast for us today, but thank you so much for your wisdom, your past studies, and your living your life as an example of someone who is truly looking for and awaiting that blessed hope. The book is called For Thou Art With Me, and we'll put that in today's post at standupforthetruth.com. Bruce, thank you again. God bless you, brother. We appreciate you spending time with us here today. Thank you so much for having me on. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you for listening and sharing today's show via StandUpForTheTruth.com slash podcast. Now, back to Stand Up For The Truth. Here's David Fiorazzo. Welcome back. We've got so much more uh, to talk about love, that perspective. You can always receive from someone who has been in ministry for years, and particularly in the case of uh, Dr. Bruce Baker, someone who has a terminal disease. And, boy, we complain about the littlest things sometimes, don't we? about the most ridiculous stuff, and we are so 
spoiled here in America. Well, I wanted to read a quote along those lines that I just came across from A.W. Tozer. This is from a sermon that he did called Concentrating on Things That Really Matter. And this is a partial quote. He said, In the Christian life, also, we find this pattern repeated. A few important things and a world of burdensome but unimportant ones. The Spirit-taught Christian must look past the multiplicity of incidental things and find the few that really matter. And let it be repeated for our encouragement. They are few in number and surprisingly easy to identify. The Scriptures make perfectly clear what they are. The fact of God, the person and work of Christ, faith and obedience, hope and love. These, along with a few more, constitute the essence of the truth, which we must know and love. Tozer continues, Christ summed up the moral law as love to God and man. Salvation he made to rest upon faith in God and in the one whom he had sent. Paul simplified the wonders of the spiritual life in these words, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The temptation to forget the few spiritual essentials and go wandering off after unimportant things is very strong. A.W. Tozer and let's just talk for a minute about his uh, clarity when he talks about the things that are perfectly clear. The fact of God, meaning the existence of God, meaning first things first, God is. Remember, he said, I am to Moses. And then remember, and Jesus said, I, I am. Oh, my goodness. I and the Father are one. So we know Jesus is God. And the fact of God, he existed first. He is outside of time. And not only did he exist, and that's where faith comes in, but then he created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As Jeremiah says, you created the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. So that's what Tozer writes as far as one of the first principles, the fact of God. Not a theory, not a whatever, a, a myth, the fact of God's existence. And then the person and work of Christ, not only the person of Jesus Christ, but the work he did. Remember he said when he prayed to the Father when he was here on earth, um, that I've completed the work that you've given me to do and now glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world began. You can find that in John chapter 17. So the fact of God, the person and work of Christ, the, and on the cross he said, it is finished. The work that God gave Jesus to do was accomplished. It is finished. And faith next. Faith and obedience. Trust in God. Obeying his word the moral law, the Ten Commandments. And then he said, hope and love. And you know the end of 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul writes, and abide these three, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love.
So be imitators of God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, And Jesus said this fulfills the law, right? Um, It's interesting how easy that we see uh, people around us, and not just the world, but we know, sadly, um, Christians getting just wrapped up into what's happening with the, the spread of the coronavirus and the shutdown of of public places, events, and businesses, and churches, which was one of the things that, to be honest, if we were to be honest with each other, we really struggled with the shutdown of churches. Not that the government issued an order and said, you must close, you cannot have any services. No, because obviously everybody and their brother was using an online service or message last Sunday, and having their service broadcast on Facebook Live or YouTube or on the Internet somehow and are still doing many messages throughout the week because we have this thing called the Internet that we can use now, which is very interesting and for such a time as this. But the, the struggle that I know a lot of us still kind of wrestle with is are, aren't we not supposed to be out there ministering to people, sharing the gospel not just being light and salt, but telling people about the hope that we have because they're freaking out. They're living in fear. Some people are isolating. Some people are are hoarding toilet paper, hand sanitizer, and battening down the hatches, and they're not going to come out of their house for weeks. Or I'm exaggerating a little bit, but there are some that live like that. So for Christians, it, it's a, is anybody ag- agreeing with me that it's hard to stay indoors and away from people who we are supposed to love and minister to and share the gospel with because they don't have the hope. They are so insecure. We are secure in Christ, in our faith, but they are so insecure. We know we trust in an unshakable God, but they are shaky. The world is shaky for them right now. And there's all this uncertainty out there. They don't know the future, but we are certain in our true God and the belief, the faith that we have in him. So I find this interesting time right now that we're going through as people in the body of Christ. And um, I don't know, I'm just open about my struggles there because I kind of think, boy, maybe we should have church services. And not to say, now let me clarify that, I'm not saying throw caution to the wind and just, hey, we're going to meet, we're going to no, we still need to to be very cautious and with the hand washing, with the everything that we need to do, the social distancing. But, but there's also wisdom that comes from that and, and that we can still, you know, get together with people. So I'm trying to find that right balance. And I, I don't think I personally have found that yet because maybe I'm a people person. Um. So comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Let me know where you're at in that respect, comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Um, on to another article here. Actually, the first article, I did that was a quote from A.W. Tozer I read before. And uh, this is called, in an opinion article from Peter Heck, an author and a teacher and a pastor, A Christian Response to COVID-19. I know, guys, you've heard it all, but here's a little bit more because I found this to be uh, well-balanced. Um, he said, on the one hand, <laughs> I hesitate to write yet another article about COVID-19 because our lives are consumed by it. You, can tur- you can't turn on your television 
scroll a Twitter feed, talk to a friend, or peruse Facebook without 99% of the content being consumed by talk of viruses, symptoms, quarantines, and social distancing. Believing firmly that sanity and good mental health demand that we step away from the 24-hour news cycle, I don't really want to add to the oversaturation of the market. Still, it's precisely because the world is taking is talking so much about this that I think it's crucial that Christians be grounded in truth and interpret everything through the lens of what God has already told us. And I'm going to pause right there because I want to go over to Romans chapter, uh, I believe it's chapter 15, verse 4. Let's see. Yeah, it's 15, verse 4. And uh, he says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Why? So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I just want to share that with you because I found that to be very applicable based on um, what Peter Heck is talking about here. And uh, now we'll go back to the article. He said, um, it isn't wise for, of us to be hearing only the panicked voice of the world. Um, he says, nervously speculating about worst-case scenarios. So we have to guard against fear, you guys, because they're talking about mass death, horrific lung scans, uh, markets are catering, unemployment, what it might get to, quarantines to last through summer possibly. But he says, doing so appeals to our flesh-centered human instinct to worry and yield our hearts to unproductive fears and anxieties that cripple our ability to distinguish ourselves as blood-bought believers who are reminded to offer up prayers and supplications with thanksgiving, free of anxiety, regardless of our situation. We quoted uh, Philippians chapter 4 earlier when I spoke with Dr. Bruce Baker. And Peter Heck continues in this article, the truth is that the world never offers a reliable or trustworthy foundation upon which to build our hope. Markets are always susceptible, wealth is always fleeting, flesh is always vulnerable, and intellect is always fallible. Let me skip through a little bit because I'll put this in the podcast notes because we're running out of time. He said, four weeks ago it seemed to most Americans that things were well under control. We were healthy, wealthy planning spring break vacations, working good jobs while envisioning opportunities for growth, considering building additions to our home, spending on frivolous wants. Then, and consider how astounding this is, a microscopic virus escapes from China and it precipitates the shutdown of the entire world. That's how helpless we humans really are. We aren't invincible. We aren't impervious. We aren't God. But for Christians, the Apostle John reminds us that though we aren't God, we are His. He has adopted us into His family, and thus the one with power over galaxies and planets, no less viruses and plagues, holds us, sustains us, and provides for us. 
So he says, let's commit to prayer. And prayer is always where it starts for the faithful, world-changing believers. He also said, may we care for one another during this time, especially within the body of Christ, within the church, as well as offering assistance to our fellow man. And he quotes um, another man who said, plagues intensify our own sense of mortality and frailty, but they also provide an incredible opportunity for the church to display countercultural, counterconditional love. And he says, finally, we testify. We preach Christ as the only solid foundation of hope in this world and the next. Man-made security is but an illusion. And if the last few weeks or last month haven't shaken our collective pride to the point of admitting that, I tremble to think what it might take. And of course, he's referring to what will bring us to our knees if this won't. So we Christians know it exists in Christ alone. That's where our hope is now more than ever. And he reminds us to spread the word. That's from uh, the website Discern. I'll put that up in the podcast notes at StandUpForTheTruth.com. When we come back, we'll tell you about our guests the rest of the week. Stand Up For The Truth, a ministry of Lakeshore Communications Incorporated. Keep the discussion going on social media. Stand Up WI on Facebook and Twitter. Now, we wrap up today's Stand Up For The Truth. All right, so many exciting guests coming up. Uh, Tomorrow, we've got Jan Markell of Olive Tree Ministries. We're going to catch up with her. Friday, Voice of the Martyrs, Todd Nettleton gives us an update, always pointing us to the truth of God's Word. And that's what we hope to do here every day on this podcast. Thank you for sharing on social media. God bless you and keep speaking the truth about things that matter.